begin again like we did last week with a more general practice of loving kindness and uh, remember the basic practice relies on enough confidence or enough faith that that the heart or the mind that it's capable of relating in a wholesome way with a beautiful attitude of loving kindness or compassion or appreciative joy or equanimity. These are the four beautiful emotions. So one way that's relatively easy is just to begin opening to the body and in that experience of opening to the body, we can see if it's possible to open to the body with a really beautiful or wholesome attitude of mind. Instead of a complaining attitude of mind or a judging attitude of mind or an indifferent attitude of mind. Think about those are very typical in terms of how we relate to the body. We can be aversive. We can want it to be different than it is. We can not care about it. So let's just sit in a comfortable way. We'll do this for about 10 minutes or so. Even uh, settling into a comfortable posture can be an expression of kindness as we listen to the body and make the necessary adjustments. Maybe take a deep breath in and out a few times. As if we were comforting an anxious child, soothing them, humming a sweet song to them. In a sense, deep breathing is this kind of comforting, soothing that we can do for ourselves. Even the attitude behind the deep breathing, see if it can be kindly. Think of really caring for the body and mind. And the expression of this caring is taking in an easy, deep breath and then exhaling an easy, deep breath. And let the breath continue on its own eventually. willingness to sit right in the middle of this experience, the experience of the body sitting. So in a sense, we're fully inhabiting the experience of sitting. And 
and recognizing I care about this life. And you could repeat that phrase a few times silently in the mind. Or something similar that's meaningful. I care about this body. And in the most simple way, bringing the attention to the head and to the face, feeling these ordinary sensations throughout the head and face, and recognizing I care about these sensations. In other words, there's a willingness to be close, to be open and interested in how it is now, in the head, in the face. So feeling the entire scalp in this kind, patient way. Bringing this interest, this Generous attention to the ears and sides of the head and back of the head. Feeling the forehead. Care about this forehead. I care about these sensations. And feeling all the subtle and not so subtle sensations throughout the face. Feeling the eyes, the brow, feeling the air touching the skin of the face, I care about the face, care about the mouth and the jaw, the teeth and gums. So for a few more seconds, opening to the head, to the face, just as it is. So we're recognizing the similarity of mindfulness and kindness, compassion, appreciation. Simple, non-harming attention. An attention that's enlivening instead of debilitating. So we bring the same kind of attention to the throat and the neck and the shoulders and both arms and hands. So take your time. Because we care, we're willing to take our time to feel everything here. If you notice becoming impatient or wanting to rush, then just try again. Is it possible to actually care about these sensations in the neck, the back of the neck, the throat, and then from the sides of the neck down 
into the tops of the shoulders, the shoulder joints, interested in both arms, the elbows, the forearms, the wrists and hands, fingers. So the expression of this kindness is a willingness to bring a full attention to the neck and the arms and shoulders, the hands. And you might even recognize that this simple full presence is Actually, a very beautiful gift. It's not a small thing. Bringing this kind attention to the torso now. You can find your own way of including the entire torso, front and back and middle, from the top all the way to the base of the pelvis. Often the hardest part is our willingness to completely show up, to be interested in the actual sensations, to be close. Not to need the sensations throughout the torso to be different than what they are. Feeling the entire pelvis, the groin, the floor of the pelvis, structure of the hips. I care about the pelvis just as it is. Feeling both legs and both feet now. At the heart of loving kindness practice and compassion practice, joy practice, is this willingness to include. Everything is included. So can we include the entire Expression of both legs and feet, all these sensations now. Even any unpleasant sensations there may be. A big yes, the legs are like this now. Both feet, 
And we'll take another minute or so and feel the whole body together. In a way, this is our first, most primary human responsibility. To be able to sit right in the middle of the body's experience. To be willing to include it. To care enough to be present with the body. The whole body is like this now. I care about this body. And even if you do find some reaction to the body as it is now, you can care about that reactivity. For example, if you're impatient or sick and tired of the pain in the back. Oh, I care about this reactivity. I care about the body. I care about how the mind is related to the body. In fact, I care about all things. This whole life long we will be living right here in the middle of this body experience. So it makes a lot of sense to cultivate a wholesome relationship with the body. In a way, it's the primary relationship and our relationships to everything else in the world tends to be affected by how we relate to the body. If you want to stretch out your legs a little bit, feel free. We'll do a little longer sit later in the evening. Do a more formal compassion practice. I sent an email out earlier this afternoon. I noticed uh, we got some responses that people weren't getting the email. I'm guessing that at least some of you, maybe a lot of you who didn't get it, it's because your spam filter picked it up. Because I'm just sending it out from my email address, and there are a lot of you, and sometimes that, that happens. So you could, if you filled out your email last week, then you might just check your spam filter and see if the email's there. If you're brand new and you haven't received any of the emails or didn't give us your email, you can sign up here at the end, and I'll get you on the email list so you can get those old emails. So hopefully you had some time this last week to practice 
And uh, even though we often say that these four divine abodes, as are called in the Buddhist tradition, these four beautiful emotions of loving-kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, and equanimity, even though we say they're inherent or they're already available, doesn't mean we don't need practice, because we've been practicing not being aware of this potentiality for a long time. So the practice is, in a sense, discovering that there is this potential, the heart has the potential to be loving, to be kind, to be compassionate, to be joyful, joyfully appreciating, and equanimous. And the interesting thing is that these emotions are so, when they're alive, they're so resonant. There's a basic principle, this is really useful to remember, and then, more importantly, to check out so you confirm it in your actual experience. But there's a basic principle. When you pay attention to an afflictive emotion like greed or anger or fear, and you bring a balanced mind, clear, balanced attention to that afflictive emotion, generally, the emotion begins to fall apart, either quickly or slowly, because part of what supports afflictive emotions, what fuels them, is the not seeing them clearly. Right? When you're angry, but you don't really know you're angry, you can really whip it up, get it going. But when you honestly know you're angry, and that, and that it's like this, so it's not enough to sort of intellectually know you're angry, but you know it because you're actually sensitive to the actual experience of being angry. It's like we just drop a hot pan. The mind, the heart, withdraws its identification from afflictive emotions. And because it's no longer identified, holding, attached, the afflictive emotion loses its fuel and it begins to fall apart quickly or slowly. But with wholesome emotions, like kindness is a wholesome emotion, patience, gratitude, forgiveness, compassion, appreciative joy, equanimity. These emotions, if you notice them with this balanced mind, clear, balanced attention, what happens? Maybe from your own experience, if you remember times when you were happy and being kind, and then you became aware of that, you were mindfully aware of the kindness, you might have noticed that it strengthened. This is a useful principle to know, at least intellectually, and then, because it will make you more interested in seeing if it's actually true. And what this points to is that all afflictive emotions are emotions that arise because the mind literally constructs them. It builds them, puts them together based on erroneous mis- you know, perceptions. We misperceive. We have sort of old patterns of seeing or believing things are this way. We kind of manufacture drama using greed, using aversion, using fear, using hatred, passion, lust. 
And so when there's that more clear, honest, balanced attention, what was constructed doesn't really make sense because it wasn't constructed based on reality. It was constructed based on our thoughts about reality, the conditioning from our past, our culture. We put it all together. And so mindfulness tends to be the universal solvent for afflictive states. They just can't hold up. But the wholesome states, they blossom with mindfulness. Because more than kindness being a thing in itself, it's really the absence of aversion. Compassion is really the absence of aversion, the absence of the heart excluding, closing down, pushing away. So when we're mindful, any of the, it's, what it's going to reveal is that these wholesome emotions are in alignment with the way it is. You know, the way it is, it's already, it's like hard work to exclude. It's actually hard work to hate somebody. It's hard work to think, if only I had this, I'd be happy. You know, so greed is hard work. But kindness isn't hard work. So if we're mindful of kindness, it blossoms. If we're mindful of being angry, it's like the heart realizes, why am I doing all this hard work of hating? It'd be just so much easier to relate with kindness, to include, well, this is how it is now. Everybody's doing the best they can, given causes causes and conditions. Now, experiment with that at home. You know, when you notice you're in a funk of one sort or another, just bring some mindful attention to it and see if it gets stronger or if it gets weaker. Now, you have to distinguish paying attention to something makes it look bigger. You know, it's like we've been impatient all day and we don't want to deal with it and we kept ourselves distracted. It will appear as one thing. And then when we look at the impatience, it may seem at first bigger because actually... We're acknowledging, oh, oh, this is how it is. This is how my heart is right now. My mind is under the influence of this impatience, and it's like this. And then as we continue to be mindful of it, interested in it, not mindful in order to make it go away, mindfulness by definition is letting things be what they are in and of themselves. So when we're mindful of being impatient, we're not trying to get rid of it, because that's being impatient with the impatience. Mindfulness of impatience isn't being impatient with the impatience. It's understanding, oh, impatience is like this. This is what it feels like. This is the dynamic, the eternal dynamic when there's impatience happening. Can this be okay? Not that you want it to last forever, but you want to have that honest, clear understanding that it's like this. And then the interesting thing is, well, what happens to it? And this will give us confidence. You know, tonight we're going to do a formal compassion practice. And the idea is, you know, the idea generally with these four emotions, the way they're set up is, it's really the same emotion, in a, in a sense. The same root emotion, which is the willingness to include things as they are, the willingness to open to our life, to our lived experience as it actually is. So it's an abandoning 
of all the different ways we're negotiating with who knows who, you know, like as if we're talking to God or the guy who's in control of everything or the woman who's in control of everything. Oh, I don't want it this way. I want it. And all that struggling, all that negotiating, that complaining, that judging, that comparing ourselves to others, that's all suffering. The opposite movement, you know, you could say on one hand, we could characterize all the unskillful emotions as various kinds of struggling, right? And all the wholesome uh, emotions as various strategies of including. Because in any given moment, it's already that way. So, it doesn't mean that we want it to be that way, but at this moment, it is already this way. So, when we ask that question, the very obvious question, how should the heart, how should the mind relate to the present moment? It never makes sense to resist because it's already this way. What other options are there? What would be the appropriate way to relate to something that's already true? This moment is arising and it's like this. How should the mind hold it, relate to it, be with it? Well, some flavor of unconditional acceptance, you know. And if what we're opening to in the moment, if what's arising in the moment is suffering, then that unconditional acceptance we call compassion. Compassion is the heart's capacity to open to what's hard to bear, to include what's hard to be around. That's what compassion is. Loving kindness is this capacity of the heart to have a friendly relationship to whatever's happening. To feel connected, to be willing to be connected, to be close to whatever's happening. It's sort of the generic movement when the heart isn't afflicted by ignorant, you know, um, confused notions of resistance, of controlling, of struggling. Appreciative joy is when Something beautiful is arising, something really nice has happened to somebody around us, or something nice is happening to us. Appreciative joy is the capacity to be close to something beautiful. Oh, I really care about this. Instead of being envious, we'll talk about this next week. Mudita is the Pali word for appreciative joy, sometimes called gladness or empathetic joy. The Dalai Lama once said something interesting. He said, when you practice mudita, this appreciative joy, you increase your odds of happiness by six billion to one. Right? Because normally as a, a self-centered human being, only when good things happen to me am I happy. But when we learn mudita, anybody's happiness makes us happy. Right? We can appreciate anything beautiful. We can appreciate, I appreciate every night when we feed our cat, And I see how happy, well, I don't know, she looks happy. (laughs) And I can appreciate that simple, I know it's just temporary, I know later she won't be, you know, she'll be hungry again or whatever, but in this moment, there seems to be a real joy of getting the food she's wanted. And we can appreciate something that simple. We're just sitting down on a chair after walking for a while. I just appreciate that simple release. 
or look around the room, you know, and just appreciate all these people. I mean, how nice it is to be around people who are interested in taking a class on loving kindness. It's like there's an instantaneous sense of safety, you know, it's like it's a pretty safe room. You could probably leave your wallet and it would still be here when you came back. Don't leave your wallet. But <laughs> it would probably be okay. Actually, it happened the other day. Shelly was, our office manager, Shelly Graff, was telling me somebody had left something and uh, they were just so appreciative to come back and find it sitting there. It's like the next day. So it's nice to have a, a simple notion how to look at how the mind, how the heart is relating. You know, we have this set of unwholesome ways. They always involve some flavor of excluding, pushing away, holding on, good and bad. You know, in philosophical terms, we call it dualistic notions, self-centered notions. And over here... You know, all wholesome emotions, wholesome ways of relating will have the flavor of unity or inclusivity, not creating unnecessary boundaries. It doesn't mean on a conventional level we don't distinguish between, oh, that's you over there and this is my body over here and, you know, she's my mother and this person's my daughter. And It's not like we lose the ability to operate in the relative world of name and form and this and that. But the mind isn't confused by that. It's really learning how to relate more and more continuously with this emotion of inclusivity. And when there's joy and beauty around us, we include by appreciating it. And when there's suffering around us, we include it by having compassion for it. And when we're confused by what's going on, we include it by being equanimous, like, being okay not knowing really what's going on. That equanimity allows us to be close when we're confused, when we're uncertain. Because we don't need it to be any particular way. That's what equanimity is. We're willing to include things when they're ambiguous. And that's a lot of life. A lot of our day, things are ambiguous. And then normally we'll get tight, like we want things to be defined. Is Obama a good president or a bad president? You know? Well, I can, I can have very strong negative feelings, you know, when I think about the drone strikes. I can get really upset about that. And I think about other things, I can get really happy about that. It's ambiguous. You know? Maybe I don't need to think he's the greatest or think he's the worst. You know? Maybe I can be close. I can care about him. I can have equanimity. Equanimity is a way of being close to this messy, confusing world we live in. It actually really allows all the other three qualities to blossom. Like, you know, equanimity allows us to see something that's beautiful and appreciate it because we don't, we don't need it to be the most beautiful thing. Like, all of a sudden, every human being has enough food, and they're all perfectly well-adjusted. We can see something really simple, like a little kid playing with another little kid. And we can we know that maybe in five minutes they're going to be fighting with each other. But right now, there's just a really nice scene, and we can just 
even though the world is still as messy as it was a moment ago, we can really let the heart appreciate it. Because we can have equanimity about everything else. It is the way that it is. But this is beautiful, and I care about it. It is the way that it is. But this person's really suffering, and I care about it. And so with compassion practice, you know, it, uh, it's very easy to misunderstand it because we have a lot of expectations, like, I should care. But compassion isn't about a should. It's about understanding cause and effect. We have to understand how is it possible for this heart, for this mind, to be close to what's difficult to bear. Because that's what compassion is. If we force ourselves to be close to something we don't want to be around, you know, a friend is suffering, maybe they've had a terrible breakup or they've lost their job and they're in a difficult financial situation, we might feel obliged to be around them because, you know, unfortunately, we're their best friend. And we'd rather keep our distance. You know, it's like fair weather, what do we call it? Fair weather friends. We don't really want to be around them when they're suffering. But we do it out of a sense of obligation. And we might call it compassion, but it's not really compassion. It's probably fear, like fear of being judged by them if you really told them what you're feeling. I'm not saying you should tell them what you're feeling. (laughs) But we want to be really honest about what's going on in our heart, in our mind, when we're around suffering. And it would be nice uh, after we do the guided sit, um, I'll save about 20 minutes, and people can share experiences of being around suffering, your own suffering, other people's suffering, and then just look at your capacity in that moment to include, to be close to the suffering, and what allowed you to be really close. And when you're close, but not defended, then you're able, you know, you might notice like ways that you were creatively skillful, like could respond to that person's suffering or respond to your own suffering in creative ways. But when you're forcing yourself to be close, we tend to be tight and we tend to want to like force to imitate what we think a compassionate person would say or do. And it's all very stinky, as you can imagine. I'm sure you've noticed yourself being stinky and certainly have noticed other people being stinky in this way where they're trying to be compassionate but trying to be compassionate isn't being compassionate. All of these emotions, by definition, are very natural and alive. And, and it isn't an ego-based thing. It isn't a self-centered thing we do to be kind, to be compassionate, to be joyful. Even though we do that all the time, we have to learn to distinguish what is really an imitation or trying to fit in or trying to live up to some idea, ideal, between that and a, an authentic presence, you know, open, undefended presence with joy, with suffering, with ordinary life, and that response that comes from that wide open presence. So they, they're, uh, we always talk about the near enemies, and I think I mentioned this last week, but in case I didn't, so with loving kindness, the near enemy, what looks like loving kindness but actually isn't, is attachment. You know, we can be really attached to our partners, but that's attachment. That's not love, kindness. And, you know, when we're really attached, we might be present, 
But it's really based on fear. Like, I don't, wanna, I don't want that person to go away. And the near enemy of compassion, what looks like, can look like compassion, but isn't, is something like pity. Like, we're actually afraid of the person suffering, so we're close to them, in a sense, responding to them, but we really want their suffering to go away. Now, we do. Compassion really does want the suffering to go away, but it's not dependent on the suffering going away. So just to take an example... I have a friend, I have a couple friends with serious cancer now, and, uh, you know, of course, I really don't want them to suffer. But if I'm with them, and my heart's in a place where I don't like their suffering, that's not really helpful for them. Because their strong tendency is not to like their suffering, their conditions either. And so if I'm in that place, I'm just going to be modeling exactly what they should be doing because it's not going to help them. Remember what I said earlier, when we have cancer or when we're around somebody with cancer, the first thing to be skillful, the first step is always to be able to connect. And if it's already this way, then it's already this way. We have to accept that it's already this way and respond from that acceptance. Given that it's already this way, I care about you. And may your heart be at ease with the pain you're in. May your heart find some freedom, some ease with these difficult circumstances. Of course, I deeply wish that conditions change and this pain goes away. But whether this pain goes away for you or not, whether this difficult situation goes away or not, I'm willing to show up. I'm willing to be close. I'm willing to, in a sense, bear this discomfort with you. Now, it's different, of course, the discomfort the person with the cancer feels and the person who's close to the person with cancer. But that's what compassion is. It's like we're not afraid of the pain of being close. So you might think that compassion is kind of a heavy state, but it's actually a very enlivened state. There is, there is very much, it's true, there is very much that feeling of, of uh, feeling the pain. But because we're relating to that pain skillfully, we're not taking it personally, we're not holding it, we're just being undefended. And it's a real practice. It was really hard. You know, my mom died in April, um, and uh, she was end-stage Alzheimer's pretty far along. And uh, the last two weeks, of course, you know, she just stopped drinking and eating. And just seeing how difficult it is for the body to stop living, you know. And... Uh, you know, just how many times, and we spent a lot of time with it during those weeks, how many times I had to remind myself that it's really okay to relax with the dying process and what I'm seeing and what I'm imagining. That it's, it doesn't help for me in some inner way to resist what's already true. And so compassion really depends on that relaxation. Pity is just the opposite. It's like, we really don't like their suffering. And so we're responding to it 
to make it go away. And it's almost this terrible thing, like, well, we don't ever say it out loud because it would be so politically incorrect, but emotionally what we're saying is, this better go away or I'm out of here, you know, because I can't handle this. Your suffering is too much for me. So I'm here for you to fix it so I can, we can be friends again. And I don't have, you know, I don't have to deal with the pain of your suffering. And it's a different thing to say, I really want you to be free from this suffering, but I'm, I'm willing to be here. And I feel, even though I don't want it to be this way, I feel enlivened by being here with you. This is an enlivening experience for me to be with you in this pain, in this fear, in this difficulty. I don't feel debilitated by it. My heart isn't being destroyed by the pain I'm sensitive to, the pain I'm picking up. And this is a very uh, powerful insight when we realize that opening to pain is transforming, is enlivening. Suffering is an enlivening. Suffering means there's pain and we don't want it to be that way. That's sort of the normal approach to suffering, to discomfort or pain. There's pain and we don't like it. And this is a good distinction just in terms of how you language your practice. Pain is inevitable in life, right? Probably none of us would disagree. You can't be a human being without pain. Both mental, physical pain, emotional pain, existential pain. So those are all different kinds of mental pain and physical pain, unavoidable in human life. When we resist it, when we think it's wrong or deny it, then we have pain and we have the suffering that is that denial or that resistance or that struggling. So when we're being compassionate with somebody else's pain or with our own pain, we're including the pain that we feel being close. But it's enlivening because we're realizing we don't have to be afraid of pain. That is such an enlivening, transforming experience. Some of you probably have that in moments like with a dying parent or some loss or some really difficult situation, but maybe with another person or maybe alone, you just found moments where you were really open, where you weren't afraid of letting the pain, in a sense, move. It's like you weren't controlling it or resisting it in any way. You had a moment or moments of being undefended, and you felt really alive even though what you were opening to was really painful. So it's not saying that there wasn't pain, but the non-fear of pain is beautiful. So remember, compassion is a beautiful state of mind in the same way that loving kindness is a beautiful state of mind and appreciative joy is a beautiful state of mind and equanimity is a beautiful state of mind. We only think compassion is not a beautiful state of mind is because we're confusing it with something like pity. There's an advertisement I saw recently. There's some nonprofit organization. I think it's called Cure Pity. Maybe you've seen some of their ads. And uh, it's really great. I mean, I don't know about the organization. Maybe it's not great. But just that idea, just that they're taking that approach that they work with kids, I think, with... Uh, physical disabilities, 
and uh, to sort of uh, have the sense that uh, we can really care about people who have difficult life circumstances without reinforcing for them the notion that they should be closing down because life is difficult. But just have the opposite, like, even though it's a lot harder for them, we should be modeling that it's possible to be close to what's going on. Because that's what they've got to do. They've got to learn how to be close to their situation, whatever it is for them. They have to learn how to include the whole thing, because it's already that way for them. And that allows and that sets them free to do whatever they can do to address their life situation. Because they fully accepted it. They're not in denial. They're not needlessly struggling. They've sort of let it all in, let it all be the way that it is. And then it allows for a creative response. And that's another sign. Because real compassion is enlivening, you'll notice in those moments, because you're not overwhelmed by the pain you're around, you'll notice that what you say, how you respond, is so much more useful. Some of you know Stephen Levine, a very well-known, he's not as active now, um, but very well-known teacher. He's done, over the years, uh, a lot of work with uh, people who are dying. And he talks, uh, he used to come to the Twin Cities to do workshops back in the 90s. And, uh, he would tell a story of being in a hospice room, I think, um, with someone who was dying and very constipated and friends and Stephen there trying to, you know, take care of the guy. And he's just, you know, besides dying and all the discomfort and on top of all that, just being really constipated. And not, as you probably know, a lot of the painkillers are very constipating. And it can be a serious problem for people, you know, who are using painkillers, um, and it's generally dying. And um, he just talked about, I forget exactly what he did, but just willing to be a complete fool to get the person laughing, which then triggered the ball movement. And, like, that ability to sort of be completely silly or stupid and uh, was not something you could plan. You know, it comes out of uh, an ability to be completely present. And in your, when you're in that situation, being present means being compassionate. Because you're being relaxed, undefended, in a situation where somebody's in a lot of pain, a lot of fear, probably. So why don't we leave it here? We'll stretch your legs. We'll do some formal compassion practice, and then we'll open it up for discussion. So you might want to stand for a minute or so, release any tension. The practice works better if you're relaxed in your body. And whenever you feel ready, you can have a seat. we did last week, we'll do a little forgiveness practice. It just helps to loosen up the heart. And in the same way we did last week, there are three things 
I'll say it now so I don't have to interrupt the sitting time. We're using phrases, which is directing the attention in a particular way. We're feeling the heart center, and we're bringing somebody to mind. So, do what you can to sit in a comfortable way. You might want to start with just a few easy breaths. And eventually let the breath continue on its own. mind first some situation from our life where we've harmed somebody, whether we did it on purpose or whether it was an accident. So see what situation comes to mind, whether it's from earlier today or long, long ago. Remembering the particular person and the particular situation, and remembering how easy it is to act out of ignorance, to act with the mind under the influence of fear or greed or delusion. And when you're ready, as if you were talking directly with this person, ask for forgiveness, something like, It isn't easy being a human being. It's easy to make mistakes. So I'm asking, please forgive me for any harm I've caused you. And you can do that a few times in a relaxed way. Bring another person to mind when you feel ready to move on. Somebody that you might have harmed in the past. can move on and bring to mind somebody that's harmed us and maybe not the worst situation from our past, but see what comes to mind, a time when somebody did something that really hurt, 
And as you bring the situation to mind, take the time to remember that it isn't easy being a human being. And it's common for all of us to get caught in fear, caught in greed, caught in our misperceptions. And we can also remember that we're exhausted by our own resentment, our own anger, and we're ready to put it down in this case. So as best I can, I forgive you. I'm ready to let go of holding you out of my heart. So as best I can, I forgive you. Find your own way to offer forgiveness. Finally, we take a moment to forgive ourselves for being an imperfect human being, living in a way that's caused ourselves suffering and caused others suffering. As best I can, I forgive myself for being an imperfect human being. I forgive myself. begin the compassionate practice, compassion practice, by bringing to mind somebody whose suffering is clear to us. And as you might imagine, we take the time to bring this person to mind. And we practice being unafraid of whatever comes up as we bring this person and their situation to mind. Feeling the heart center, remembering this person. And you might just start with the simple phrase, I care about your pain. And you can use a different word than pain, maybe a more specific word if that works best. I care about your fear. So we're practicing being close. And then when you feel ready, you can offer a generous wish. Something like, may your heart find ease with these conditions you're in. May wisdom protect you in the deepest way. And may you find ease in your life, peace in your life. 
You can be creative. The first part of the phrase helps you get close to the pain. I care about your pain. And then the second phrase, when you're ready, is an act of generosity. You're sending out a good wish. May your heart be open and wise and easeful. or whatever phrase works for you. And we're just going to continue on our own for a while now. Keep coming back to the phrases, feel the heart, and keep remembering the person you're sending the wish to. And don't be afraid to wish the person real beauty, real freedom and peace. There's nothing wrong with wishing them well, even if they're in a difficult place now in their life. That's a beautiful wish.
enlivening compassion can be. And you can continue working with this person during the whole sit. But feel free also if you want to move on. You can bring any dear person to mind and just tune into their difficulty. Everybody has their own particular share of pain and suffering in their lives. But continue initially to work with easy people, people whose suffering you can easily bring to mind and people who are generally easy to bring to mind for you. I care about your fear, your pain. May your heart be peaceful and at ease. May you be free. Initially, it's useful to really stick with the phrases. It helps keep the mind coming back to the experience of compassion. But when the actual experience of compassion is quite strong and clear, feel free to drop the phrases and just focus on that movement of the heart that is compassion. tender, quivering, alive feeling of the heart.
know, at some point, it's good to practice being compassionate toward our own pain, the difficulty that we recognize in our own lives, our own heart now. Just change the pronouns of the phrases you've been using. I care about this pain. May this heart be free, fearless, and wise. May I be at ease in my life. As if you're talking directly to the heart, Are we willing to be close to our own life now and care about it? I care about this body. I care about this life. I care about any confusion, any doubt. May this heart be safe. May the heart be wise skillful. May the heart be peaceful and happy. Just to experiment, you can bring a neutral person to mind, somebody you don't know well, and you may not even be aware if they're suffering in any obvious way now, but you do know they're a human being and probably have their own particular share of difficulty in their life. Could be somebody you know from a store that you go to or somebody at the office. So we call this bringing to mind a neutral person. could be the person sitting next to you right now. So we bring to mind a neutral person, and we begin to open to their suffering, however ambiguous or unknown it might be. 
Whatever difficulty there is in your heart, in your life, I care about it. I know it isn't easy being a human being, and I care about your life. I care about any difficulty in your life. May your heart be happy, wise, and at ease. May you take care of your life with great skill. Wisdom always protects you. And we'll take a few moments to just have a sense of all the people here in this room now. Maybe you know a couple people here, but most of the people here we don't know well, but We can be sure that all of us here have our own share of suffering, of pain, confusion, and doubt. I care about all beings here in this room, and I care about all the suffering, all the doubt, all the sense of shame, all the confusion. I care about everybody in this room. May we all be wise and skillful in our lives. May wisdom and love protect us from harm. May we we realize real peace and freedom. Continue on your own for another few moments. And aware of the enormity of suffering throughout the world. All the living beings without enough food experiencing aggression and violence and poverty, being oppressed, not just humans, but also all the other animals in difficult conditions. We just let it break the heart. I care about all of this suffering, all the hunger. I care about all the loneliness, feelings of alienation. I care about all the physical pain and discomfort, beings that are cold, beings that are too hot. I care about all suffering. May all living beings be protected from harm. May wisdom 
protect all beings. May all beings be free and at ease in their lives. I care about all beings. that gives you a little flavor of how to work and last week I sent out to the email list uh, instructions for each of the four of the divine abodes for the phrases for loving kindness for compassion for the appreciative joy for the equanimity so you can check that sheet during the week to get reminded but it'd be nice in a perfect world you'd have time every day to do a little of the compassion practice the idea with this course is just to get some experience so that you can then at the end decide where you want to dig in. Maybe you're just going to work with a particular style of practice for a while. But it's useful to kind of get a sense of the full range. So we have a little less than 15 minutes, but it would be nice to hear from people. Questions, of course, about what I've said earlier about the sit that we just did. It's really useful to clarify any of the instructions. And then also experiences from your life where you had to relate to your own pain, your own suffering, or others, and what you learned, how you didn't do so well, or how you did do quite well. It's really nice to hear people's successes and challenges, too. Yeah, Jonathan. It's just a matter of what you're seeing. So when you bring somebody to mind, if what you're seeing is suffering, then flavor your phrases accordingly. <clears throat> if you're not seeing suffering and you're not necessarily seeing joy or success, then use more of the loving-kindness phrases. <coughs> so it's really a matter of when you're opening, when you, for whatever reason, have decided to bring your attention to somebody, then just notice what you're seeing. And then let the phrases acknowledge that. So remember, the phrases are acknowledging something that's true. You're not just manufacturing something. The phrases are helping the mind recognize, acknowledge what's true. So when I say to myself or say to another person, I care about your suffering, repeating that phrase is pointing out something that's already true. It's just the phrase is amplifying that truth. I do care about your pain. I do wish that your heart be at ease. Yeah. Thanks, Jonathan. 
Other thoughts? Yeah. Rina? Rina? Yeah. Um, I have a question about when you're out in the world relating to other people's passions. Um, but if Yeah, but it depends on our own relationship to our pain. It's like, <clears throat> because you can imagine that empathy going wrong is if our own relationship to our pain is not so wise. Like if we're in denial or if we're afraid of it, and then <clears throat> that person's pain reminds us of our pain, and then what we're going to be doing is like practicing our own denial and modeling it for the other person. So the more important thing is that it, it can be quite useful to recognize that we all have our own share of pain. And, and in a way, one of the insights in life generally is we go from like this pain and that pain and to the pain. Because you, somebody might be suffering the pain of losing a baby and another person might be suffering the pain of a breakup and another person is just feeling kind of lost in their life and not sure what their life is about and they have that pain. But pain is pain in a way. And uh, it's really nice to go beyond the personal quality of it and to see the universality of it. Even something simple like uh, I remember one really powerful moment so simple that very, very powerful in my life, in my practice. I was doing some walking meditation. It was in the middle of a three-month retreat, so I, my mind was pretty sensitive and pretty quiet. And it was uh, in fall, starting to get cold, and that was one of the first really cold days. And I was just walking back and forth, and eventually I noticed a grasshopper, and it was below freezing. And, uh, you know, you could just see it wasn't easy to move. And... Uh, just uh, that, you know, just seeing the universality of that. It wasn't about that particular grasshopper. It's just getting a little deeper in that moment what a setup life is. There's birth and then there's death. And, uh, and that even though the grasshopper didn't want this to happen, you know, this is what's happening. You know, the season's coming to the end. And all the grasshoppers, you know, I don't... I don't think grasshoppers survive. I don't really know too much about grasshoppers, but I'm assuming they all die at the end of the season, you know, and then there's an extra round next year. But just the poignancy of that, and so that's that empathy. Like, it wasn't, what I was sensing is that was as true for me as it was for the grasshopper, as it was for the buildings. Everything was involved in this birth and death, coming into being and falling apart. And we can, that's really what empathy is about. And that's really good because it breaks our heart wide open. Like that, that's the world we live in. We live in a world of birth and death. We live in a world of change. That, that everything is like sand through the fingers. We can't really find solid ground. And, uh, either that can make us neurotically tight and neurotically struggling to pretend like we do have solid ground. Or we can really let it break the heart and it breaks the heart wide open and we become really sensitive and really alive. And it's ironic maybe that 
know, being really alive involves being really vulnerable because that's what life is. Life is, there's this great quote, you can Google Helen Keller and you probably find it. Most of you know Helen Keller. For years and years when we were at our old building, I think for like 15 years, we had this quote up in the bathroom. Um, and it's something like, life is either a daring adventure or nothing. That there's really no security for humankind. That's just a false notion that there's security. And that either we open to this completely, this being undefended with insecurity, with vulnerability, or we're losing our life because there's no such thing as security. It's just something we imagine and then we have to defend it. And it, that defending of that false notion of security closes us off from life. We miss our life because we're in our you know, proverbial gated community of one sort or another where we feel, we imagine that it's not going to happen to me whatever it is, you know, that's happening to other people. Thanks for that. We have other thoughts? Yeah, say your name. Yeah. I, I had an experience with the speed One of the things we often forget is our own discomfort. You know, the Buddha had this statement where he said, you could search the world over and never find someone more deserving of love or compassion as yourself. So there you are, and you might think, you know, I should have compassion for my mom, this can't be easy for her. But 
What's so even more obvious than that is, this isn't easy for me. It isn't easy for me to lose my father. It isn't easy for me to be spending time with my mother. None of this is easy. And why aren't we acknowledging that pain, you know, our own discomfort? So that's often what we miss is that somehow we don't feel it's okay to care about our pain and to look at it and to meet it and to respond creatively to it. You know, whatever that is, to cry or to talk to a friend or to basically just whatever the the creative, loving response is when we open. So I would really look at that. And then you'll be modeling for your mom what she needs to do with her pain. You know, and so that's really the gift we can give to each other is to be very honest. And can you imagine how useful it might be in the right moment, at the right way, for you to say something like, it's as if there's a stone here. You know, that could really crack things open in a powerful way. That moment of honest expression, like, that's how it feels. It's really useful to be, uh, like, to be willing to do our own work is the greatest gift. You know, it's not about being selfish. A lot of people, I think, wrongly accuse mindfulness or just this general path of practice as being selfish, you know, because we're looking at the heart, looking at the mind, but it's really, we're cultivating wisdom and peace, and it's, this is what the world needs, and it's really how we take care of everybody, and how we hurt everybody is thinking we got to take care of everyone, you know, it's like, let me fix you, please, and that is often a, a huge act of violence that we put on other people when we judge them or we think we know what's right for them instead of taking care of our own pain. Thanks for sharing that. I appreciate that. But yeah, Ed. that motivation to change come from? It's like, uh, let's use a really uh, sort of maybe overused symbol that it's so potent, you know, that was making the rounds a couple years ago of the polar bears looking for sheet ice to do their hunting and not having any. And uh, so you see an image like that, and I'm sure you've heard, you know, how much of the Arctic ice has retreated compared to previous years. And uh, those simple images, especially seeing an animal, a helpless animal, really cuts deep for us. You know, it's just the same thing as like seeing a suffering baby that's not being helped. I think that's often our relationship with other species. Like we see them as vulnerable and we don't like that. And I think what the teachings would say is, uh, 
to really trust the breaking of the heart. Like that's the first movement is we really need to let the heart break. So if you want to call that acceptance, fine, but it's a, it's a powerful act to really let that in, whether you're bringing to mind the injustice around, you know, distribution of wealth in the world or the lack of food or the lack of clean water or the political oppression or the prejudice around people, uh, you know, gay lesbian communities or the people of different colored skin or whatever, all of the terrible things in the world, it's not about denying it. It's not about imagining it's all okay at some cosmic level. It's about feeling what we feel and letting it in. And then that's where the action comes from. So the, the, the sort of meditative piece isn't about retreating. I mean, there is part of that. There, there is a movement in life generally where we need to rest. You know, we need to sleep at night. And also, besides sleep, we also need to retreat from when the mind is overwhelmed and is just agitated by what it's experiencing. We need some space. But then when, we're, when we have balance again, then we really want to practice letting life touch deep. Letting it in completely, being inclusive, like I was saying at the beginning tonight. Really including everything. And then what comes from that is a response. That response isn't something you or I or anybody does. It's a natural thing. When we let life touch the heart, this, the life of this body-mind thing we call ourselves, it responds. And nobody has to direct that response. It comes out of having been touched, having seen what we've seen, felt what we felt. So that's really the dynamic of being a engaged, loving, wise person is there is this receptive movement and then an assertive movement. So there's a natural giving and receiving, natural yin and yang, that's what we call the spiritual life or a good life, a wholesome life, where we're really letting things in and then the response comes. But we have to appreciate that it's not easy to let things in. We have to work at that. And we tend to immediately want to go to the action. Because it's just, it's just the nature of our culture generally. And uh, it's just more obvious. So we tend to ignore what's subtle and do what's more gross. Action in the world is more gross. But the reason why the world is so mixed up is that people are acting, but they're not really letting things in. They're not seeing clearly. That's what's being missed. And these four emotions really help us to feel and see things clearly as they are. Compassion allows us to see the injustice and the suffering and the pain. And then we can actually, our action, our assertive movement back into the world, then will come from having... Deep, deeply seeing what's going on. We have to leave it here. It's 9 o'clock. We'll just take a few seconds, take a breath or two together, let go of the words. <laughs> and feeling inspired to bring this basic friendliness, what we call metta, loving kindness, into the world. And whenever we meet our own or others suffering, to really practice letting it in, touch the heart, not being afraid of the pain, 
that we feel when we're willing to be sensitive. Relaxing. And letting a beautiful response come from having been touched, having been open. So this will be our practice this week. And then next week we'll do the mudita, the appreciative joy practice. And I'll send out some more information about that as we post the next Tuesday. Take care, everybody. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.